This is the podcast Matinees on Main Street. We're telling the story of the history of the movies. Before we start, I'd like to apologize in advance for how badly I'll butcher my French. I was a terrible student in French, even though my mother was French. With help from both my wife, who was fairly fluent in the language, and pronunciation guides online, I did the best I could. Rode d'amour, mélodie de chaminade. Today's story takes place in eastern France, in the industrial town of Lyon. It's where a young man and his family, who were refugees from the Franco-Prussian War, started one of Europe's important photographic supply companies. That company would eventually create a camera projector that in some ways was more important than the Edison's projector in promoting movies to the world. There are similarities between the two companies, such as the importance they both have for the development of the movies within their own countries, as well as the company's primary interest in profit over art. Still, Edison made a lot more wrong assumptions over the direction and success of the movies than did the Lumiere family. It's delightful to see that the last name of the company that brought cinema to the world is actually French for light. Yes, it's a coincidence and nothing intentional unless the family patriarch, Antoine Lumiere, had decided to become a photographer simply because of the family name. Then again, I don't know a single person with the last name of Smith who ended up becoming a blacksmith, although some distant ancestor of theirs undoubtedly had. The Lumiere family lived in the department of Alçon, near the small French city of Besançon in eastern France. The French departments were primarily named after geographic attributes, so the Alçon region is the department formed around the waters of the Upper Son River. The river flows south until it merges with the larger Rhone River in Lyon, where the Lumieres would eventually settle. The department of Otson is half of a territory that was once part of the kingdom of Burgundy. That territory was known as Franche-Comté. They had been part of the Habsburg Empire up until the 1600s, when the French king, Louis XIV, grabbed it through a treaty. Franche-Comté includes both the departments of Otson and the neighboring Doubs. The major city in Franche-Comté is Besançon. That's where Antoine Lumiere set up a photographic studio. Besançon was originally a Roman town that was established at the bend of the River Doubs, and like Lyon, was heavily influenced by its nearness to Switzerland. Antoine married Jean-Josephine Costille when he was 19, and a year later they moved to Besançon. Ten years later, when the Lumieres now a family with two young boys, one named Auguste, the other named Louis, the disastrous Franco-Prussian War broke out. The Prussian army invaded most of the northeastern part of France, and that included Besançon. The Lumiere family became French refugees and traveled south to Lyon, 
where they established a new home and Antoine gave up photography to start up a photographic supply company. Lyon was France's urban industrial giant. The city was a major industrial center by the end of the Middle Ages due to its silk textile industry. Lyon made a lot of money from silk and the city soon became France's financial as well as industrial heart. Lyon is situated between Paris, Germany, Switzerland, and Italy, and these days, many major corporations have their head offices there. Lyon has now positioned itself as France's technology capital, a French Silicon Valley, so to speak. At first, the Lumiere factory produced glass plates for photography before expanding into selling other types of photographic equipment. You can find similarities between a company like the Lumiere's and an American photographic supply company such as Eastman Kodak or Blair. Blair started out selling camera equipment and expanded into producing its own cameras. The Lumiere company was family operated with Antoine's sons working with him full time. For a number of years, the company struggled just to avoid bankruptcy as the market for glass plates seems to have been glutted. Still, Antoine managed to send both of his sons to Martiniere, the major technical school in Lyon. Auguste, the older of the two boys, seems to have been a physically active young boy, and his scientific interests involved medicine. He would later use his discoveries in cinema to help advance research in the medical field. Louis, a few years younger than Auguste, seems to have been more sickly. He suffered from headaches and insomnia, but also managed to be the top student at Martiniere, with his scientific interests laying more towards physics. As adolescents, Louis and his sisters worked long hours at the factory, while Auguste, the oldest, was called into the military. He returned home in 1882 with the family business still struggling. Louis developed a coating that could be applied mechanically to glass plates and when dried was a superior dry plate for photography. The two brothers designed the machinery to do the coating and drying. The process plates were marketed under the name Etiquette Bleu, meaning blue label. With the sudden success of the dry plates, the company transferred its headquarters to the then Lyonnais suburb of Montplaisir. Having made a jump start into the dry plate coating market, the Lumiere's business took off. By the end of the 1880s, with Antoine nominally in charge, Auguste acting as a kind of production manager, and Louis working as the head of R&D, the Lumiere's were the premier glass plate provider for photographers in Europe. It was at this time that Antoine started buying massive properties as he indulged in what Auguste would later call his father's stone addiction. He bought his first major property along the Mediterranean at that time, a vineyard of over 200 acres. Several miles east of Marseille and several miles west of the famous French naval yard at Toulon, it was near the French village of La Cieta. It was at La Ciotat where the Lumières filmed their most famous film clip, the arrival of the train into the station in La Ciotat. This was a film about an arriving train that soon was subject of a legend. 
Supposedly, audiences panicked when they first watched the arriving train coming towards them. Whether it was true or not, the film clip certainly created a greater legend than that of any other film of the time. One of the Lumiere's most prestigious customers was French physicist Etienne Jules Marais, and through him they became acquainted with his attempts to capture images of movement using the photographic gun. Over time, they also came to understand how these processes worked through Marais' assistant, Georges Demeny, and his early attempts to patent and market his supervisor's ideas. Still, the idea of the Lumieres making cinematic machines did not come from Marais or Demeny. While a few sources say that the idea was first conceived by Auguste Lumiere, it's generally believed that it was his father, Antoine, who visited Paris at the time that the kinetoscopes were appearing in the fall of 1894. At the time, Antoine was not that busy a man. His sons were primarily running his company, and they were the ones who had turned the business around. While he did deal with issues at the factory, he could also be found playing cards in the park with Felicien and Trevet, a well-regarded French magician who would use magic lanterns in his shows. Besides his trips to La Ciotat, where he regularly relaxed and vacation, Antoine also occasionally visited Paris. There, it wouldn't have been hard for him to purchase film footage or even have some given to him after he had viewed the kinetoscope. He did just that and brought the strip of positive kinetoscope film back to his sons, suggesting that they might be able to take advantage of this new market. So remember the last episode when I talked about the problems between Thomas Armat and Charles Francis Jenkins? Now might be a good time to remember that, due to their animosity towards each other, it was impossible to tell who did what when they developed the Fantascope. Well, it's also hard to tell what happened between the Lumiere brothers for the opposite reason. Early on, the two brothers agreed to share all credit on everything they developed. This included their mechanical inventions, their experiments with early films, and especially their work creating the world's first marketed color film. They did tell reporters and historians about their accomplishments, but they never did reveal who did what. The Lumiere's machine is quite remarkable in a number of ways. It definitely was different from the cameras and projectors that were being developed by the others. The most important feature was that they could use their cinematograph to both record images and play them back. Also, the machine was capable of making movie positives from the negative. Every other camera that was developed operated separate from its projector. Some were very large and heavy. 
but the Lumiere machine was quite compact and light in comparison. The difference was what the Lumieres chose to include and exclude from their machine. Everyone who was developing movie projectors and cameras understood the basic needs and processes for building one. The cameras and projectors were all built to use camera film, as it was the only way to photograph images consecutively. The images had to be shot at a rate that was near 20 frames a second, although a standard rate had not yet been established. Edison and Dixon were shooting at a rate as high as 40 images a second, and others were shooting in the 20s, or up to 30 images a second. And don't forget, you needed illumination to project your films. Most of the projectors had some kind of projecting light. At the same time, there were four major problems that existed with the systems that were developed at that time. The first was mechanical precision, or more appropriately, the lack of it. As everyone who devised an intermittent device understood, it was based on a mechanical concept used in the sewing machine. Due to the inexperience of the machinists, the intermittent mechanisms should have been manufactured by companies who were experienced in making such intricate machine work. This was definitely the case in America. Unfortunately, some inventors couldn't afford such precision in their gears and purchased assemblies that didn't work that well. Another issue was space reduction. It's one thing to design a machine, it's another to design a concept that compresses all these ideas into a smaller space. Many of the earlier projectors had their various parts sprawled over a table-sized container rather than fitted into a convenient box. This made the early machines rather unwieldy and heavy. Also, most of these machines depended upon power. Now that cities were electrifying, thanks to Edison and Westinghouse, the inventors chose to power their projectors with electric motors. This added even more weight to the projectors, as these motors were still quite large. Finally, there's the lack of lightweight materials. These days, our designs use materials such as plastics because they're of lighter weight, but at that time, we were still using heavier, denser products such as metals and wood. At the time, Eastman Kodak was already experimenting with making their cameras lighter, but they too were having problems with this issue. The most viable lightweight product at that time was cardboard, but cameras were used outside, and water could easily damage a cardboard-designed camera. Thankfully, the Lumieres addressed some of these issues. The brothers understood mechanics and were quite aware of what others were doing in their field simply by consulting patent information, listening to those in the know, and reading scientific journals. They set out to build a smaller camera that could also be used as a projector. Step one was to remove the motor, which ate a lot of space and created a lot of weight. They would use a hand crank to drive the cameras and projectors. Second, they designed for compact size. As the mechanics of the camera and the projector were the same, they figured they could get one small box to do both jobs, while the light source was separated in a second box. 
With the motor removed, their small movie camera now weighed only 11 pounds. Finally, the Lumieres created an intermittent mechanism based on an idea that Louis had devised during one of his usual bouts of insomnia. It involved movable claws rather than the more complicated mechanisms others had designed. The brothers took their time creating a viable product because they had the time and money to do so. In the end, what is more surprising is that the Edison company didn't bother to achieve the same thing. Once they had the machine designed, the Lumieres assigned the company mechanic to build it. Supposedly, Auguste had sketched out the machine, but when the concept wasn't performing properly, he handed the project off to Louis to rework the concept. The design and construction happened pretty quickly. Work started in late 1894 and the prototype was soon ready. Unlike Edison's struggle to make a machine that could play both sound and pictures, the Lumieres found it easy to make a machine that would both record and project images. Surprisingly, there was no rush to market. The brothers spent all of 1895 testing the machine, spreading the word about their cinematograph through talks and demonstrations, as well as making movies for the delight of their captive audiences. In early 1895, the Lumieres started to test the cinematograph. This involved setting the camera at the factory exit and filming the workers as they left. In early 1895, the Lumieres started to test the cinematograph. This involved setting the camera at the factory exit and filming the workers as they left. This test became the first of three films known as La Sorte de l'Usine Lumière à Lyon. The exact translation is The Exit of the Lumière Factory, but it's better known by the title of Workers Leaving the Lumière Factory. Variations in these three films are sometimes referred to as one horse, two horses, or no horses. The obvious reason is that they are defined by the number of horses that leave the building at the end of the film clip. One horse was the first film, and besides a one-horse carriage, it showed some workers wearing coats, a number of people in dark clothing, and the skeletal shadow of a leafless tree in the foreground. The other two show shadows of a tree with leaves, and workers in lighter dress. No horses looks as if it was filmed in the summer. According to Louis Lumiere, one horse, the first version of workers leaving the Lumiere factory, was shot in the late summer of 1894. This would have been about six months before the first exhibition, but considering that the tree's shadows is without leaves, this was probably filmed much later in the year. In late March of 1895, Louis Lumiere was lecturing at the Paris meeting for the Society for the Encouragement of National Industry. There were over 200 members of the group attending, including Leon Gamont, who was director of the Comptoir General de la Photographie, the company that would become El Gamont SE. And the topic of discussion for the meeting concerned the development of color film. The Society's president had invited Louis to give the lecture and he agreed. The Lumieres, along with other companies such as Gaumont, 
were searching for ways to expand the concept of photography, not just by making moving images, but by developing color film and even investigating three-dimensional photography. So the clips of moving images they brought were of secondary importance and were meant to suggest the possibilities of using moving pictures in scientific research. The brothers were taken by surprise when the audience of scientists and photographers gave them an ovation and gushed over the moving images of the hundred or so vacating employees at the Lumiere plant. Their surprise really shows how the Lumiere's interests blinded them to the commercial aspects of moving pictures. This really paralleled Edison's attitude towards his kinetoscope in the marketing of his moving pictures. After the March meeting in Paris, the Lumieres were approached by Jules Carpentier, a camera developer who had attended the meeting. He offered his services to the brothers in order to help manufacture their machines. It wouldn't be until very late in the year before manufacturing would even start. A month after the meeting, another opportunity arose to show the film clips to a scientific organization of great importance when the Congrès de Société Savant met at the Sorbonne in Paris. Again, it seems to have been a limited show, but it was well received. At around this time, Louis Lumière shot a small number of films, of which the most important was Repas de Bébé, also known as Baby's Meal, and Rosseur Rose, or The Sprinkler Sprinkled. As the Lumière's first film clip, Workers Leaving the Lumiere Factory, was supposedly filmed towards the end of 1894, you can see that both Baby's Lunch and The Sprinkler Sprinkled were both undoubtedly filmed during warmer weather. In both film clips, the foliage and trees have leaves and the people in them are wearing light clothing. It was probably filmed sometime in late spring or early summer. A fair guess would be that they were made in late April or even May of 1895, as they were both part of the next exhibition the Lumières held in Lyon. Both of these films inspired interest from the audiences that saw them. This interest was much greater than what was inspired by the Edison kinetoscope film clips. It's impossible to know if this interest was developed due to showing them to audiences rather than to one person at a time, or if the films themselves created that interest. It could be assumed that an audience watching Baby's Meal would be most delighted by the feeding of a baby, but that's not what everyone talked about when they saw the film. Behind the heads of Auguste Lumiere and his wife Marguerite, and their daughter André, you can see the landscape as the wind blew the leaves on the trees. The wind wasn't brisk, but just active enough to create some movement. It has puzzled historians why the audience had been more entertained by the wind blowing than by little Andre. The assumption could be that while everyone had seen photographs of babies, no one had ever seen images of the wind blowing. As for the sprinkler sprinkled, it was simply a film of a child's prank. It was a joke suggested by Louis and Auguste's younger brother, Edouard, although he was too young to perform the role of the child adequately. Instead, an adolescent who worked as an apprentice in the factory's workshop by the name of Duval 
was used as the movie's youth. The gardener was the Lumiere's gardener, Monsieur Clerc. It's been remarked by a number of historians that this film was probably prearranged in that both persons in the film clip were trying hard to follow direction while staying within the cinematic space defined by the camera's lens. That is, until the last moment. Possibly this was done by instruction from Louis. For some students of film history, this cute little prank is considered the first comedic film, or, more accurately, the first attempts at humor on film. Interestingly, along with Edison's Annabelle films, this was among the very first film clips that would be imitated by other camera and film companies. These two films, Baby's Lunch and The Sprinkler Sprinkled, now joined a slowly growing collection of film clips that Louis and Auguste would show at meetings of the prestigious scientific organizations. The next group, the Congrès de Photographes, also known as the Photographic Congress, were a regional photographic group that was meeting in the Lyonnais suburb of Neuville-sur-Saône. They traveled up the Saône River by steamboat and arrived in Neuville just in time for Louis to film the group disembarking from the boat. This was captured in the film clip Le Débarquement du Congrès de Photographie à Lyon, or the landing of the Photographic Congress in Lyon. Interestingly, the last man off the boat who was carrying a box camera is Jules Janssen. He was the first person to develop a camera that could shoot multiple images, and he was the man whom Moret consulted when he started to develop his photographic gun. It's obvious that there is a sense of humanity in the Lumiere's film clips that rise above the vaudeville subject matter that is portrayed in the Edison film clips. As much as Dixon did his best to find subjects that interested the clientele that viewed kinetoscopes, when it came to appeasing the public in general, a large portion of it was much more appreciative of film clips of a man's family or watching men leave a boat rather than the boxers, dancers, and performers who littered the kinetoscope clips. Moving pictures were about making photography move, and for most people, photography was about humanity not about stage performers in various guises. Moving pictures will constantly navigate between this issue of human reality and the artificiality of professional performers up until the time that professional actors start performing naturally. That's when they first attempt to imitate a personal humanity that is distinct from their own. The Lumieres would hold a few more private professional showings throughout 1895, one in Belgium and another in Paris, before they held their first public showing again in Paris right after Christmas. These showings were probably meant to gauge the interest that people had in moving images, or at least to see if people were willing to spend money on cinematographs. The Lumieres were doing what Edison was doing, selling machines and providing a limited number of film clips to encourage the selling of those machines. But they went one step farther. They would also encourage their customers to make their own movies. To do so, those customers would have to buy film that the Lumieres conveniently sold. 
neither the Lumieres nor Edison grasped that the real money would be in the films themselves, and by the time that reality suddenly dawned on them both, the Lumieres had backed out of their project, and Edison was fighting for his cinematic life. He would spend the rest of his movie career fighting those who were profiting from his machine. But that's all in the future. In a few episodes, I'll start discussing the projectors that were suddenly appear on the market in 1896, including the Lumiere Cinematograph, Edison's Vitascope, Robert Paul's Theatrograph, and even later, the Mutoscope's Bioscope. But first, I want to discuss who could be considered the first star of the movies, a popular dancer named Annabelle Moore, whom Edison repeatedly filmed because her kinetoscope clips wore out so often that he had to refilm her over and over again. That's next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you.